0: Chapter 3, it's page 974 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. And after today, we will be taking a five week break from our series in the book of Galatians because next Sunday we will uh, begin a short sermon series leading up to Easter Sunday that we're calling Just As He Said. Just as he said in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 28, uh, the angel came upon the women at the empty tomb, and he said, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said. And so we're going to unpack that phrase, just as he said, and what it can mean for, for our lives leading up to Easter. And then the Sunday following Easter, we will be having an ordination service for our missions partner and now ordination candidate, Phil Remmers. And so we'll take that Sunday to be able to explain what that is and what that means for for Phil and for us. And we'll be able to celebrate that uh, the week after Easter. And then, Lord willing, we will return to Galatians at the end of April. And a lot can happen in five weeks, but that is the plan uh, for us. So as we dive into our passage this morning, we're going to pick things up in the final verse of chapter 3. It's verse 29. It's right after the well-known verse 28 that we took the time to unpack last week That there is no Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now we pick it up at verse 29, and we'll take it through verse 7 of chapter 4. And so if you're able, can I invite you to stand together with us with Bible in hand, or you can look up at the screen behind me and follow along in our passage this morning. And if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, Amen. You may have a seat. Russell Moore is the chair of public theology at Christianity Today. And in his book, Adopted for Life, he tells the story of how he and his wife Maria adopted their two sons from a Russian orphanage in July 2002. During the first of two visits to the orphanage they would take, Moore said... The staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one year olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. These children did not cry. Because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. After the lengthy adoption process was complete, the Moors went to the car with their newly adopted boys. It would be the first time in their lives that the boys saw sunlight. First time in their lives that they felt fresh outdoor air. And the ride from the orphanage to the airport, they were physically shaking and and reaching back toward the orphanage, understandably fearful of this new world that was ahead of them. They had a new father and mother in the car with them who will love them unconditionally, Care for them, sacrifice for them in every way, yet at that, at that moment they longed to return to the place that they had been freed from. And to this, Russell Moore wrote quote, All these years later, I still vividly remember those little hands reaching for the orphanage, and I see myself there, struggling myself to grasp what it means to be adopted by God, who loves me unconditionally. In this passage, Paul concludes a section of his letter that he began back in chapter 3, verse 1, which, if you recall, or if you still have your Bible open, you can look. It starts with a question. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Galatians were, were trading in a gospel of grace for a gospel of law. They were exchanging God's free gift of salvation by, by faith for, for a salvation that came by, by works of their own merit to, to earn God's love. And those questions at the top of chapter 3 would launch Paul into one of the most complex, theologically dense chapters in the Bible, where Paul will lay out the relationship between grace and law, where he will connect God's promises to Abraham and God's law given to Moses in the Old Testament to now the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, And the resounding note throughout was to help the Galatian church to see that God's plan from the beginning for his people was always rooted in grace, That that justification, salvation came by faith alone and in Christ alone, meaning that it is our trust and dependence upon His work that transforms us before God. It it was a chapter that, if you recall, if you were here when we began it, I I said, This is a chapter that's going to make you think, it's going to engage your mind to have to process and and affirm God's design from the beginning and connecting all these dots. And now, Paul closes this important section by going from engaging the mind to stirring the heart. And he does so by talking about adoption. The the beauty of the gospel does not end with justification, that, that you are rendered righteous before God by faith. That is true, but it does not end there. It climaxes at adoption. That we become children of God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says that justification by faith is the primary blessing of the gospel because it addresses our primary spiritual need of being guilty in sin before God and deserving of judgment. But, he says, adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel because it is the richer personal relationship that it involves. And he wrote in the book that one could answer the question, hey, what is a Christian, in several ways? But Packer says, quote, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Why is adoption the highest blessing we can experience in the gospel? Why does Paul end this section here? I think the passage provides three reasons, starting with number one, the love of the Father. The love of the Father. Above all else, Paul wants the Galatians to embrace and then experience the richness of the, relationships with the, of the relationship with their heavenly Father. And then see them walk in the power and the freedom of what it is to be loved like that. And so what Paul does is he gives an illustration that everyone in the Galatian church would have been able to understand. And while it might not fit as neatly in our 21st century minds, I think we can still grasp the point of his illustration. In the first century, the firstborn son of a family, particularly of a wealthy family, would be in line to receive the inheritance. But while he was a child... As the rightful heir, he would still basically be treated like a servant until he would reach a certain age. And the reason is pretty simple, that young children do not have the autonomy to just do whatever they want. And, and, And Paul, by the way, is using the language of sons in here, and he's not saying sons and daughters, because in that culture, it was only sons who could receive an inheritance. But let's not think that Paul himself is being kind of ignorant here or sexist here because remember just in verse 28 that we unpacked last week, he said the full rights of a child of God, including a full inheritance, are granted to all of those who are in Christ by faith, regardless of whether they are male or female. But Paul takes this kind of quick illustration to convey what happens when someone receives the full rights of being a son of God by faith. Those who are adopted into God's family. That now you can experience God not as a divine judge to be feared, but as a divine father to be loved by. And the call on the lives of the Galatians that Paul is writing to, the, the call on our lives is to not constantly question whether or not God loves us and, and therefore have to kind of live a life uh, that is just filled of doing things to ensure that he might love us. And if he actually does love us, that he will keep loving us. But rather the call on our lives is to rest in his love for us and then live out of that freedom. Dane Ortlin writes in the chapter Father of Mercies in the book Gentle and Lowly, which we gave a free copy out to everybody at the beginning of the year. His quote will be on the screen. He says, Who is God the Father? Just that, our Father. Some of us had great dads growing up. Others of us were horribly mistreated or abandoned by them. Whatever the case... The good in our earthly dads is a faint pointer to the true goodness of our Heavenly Father. And the bad in our earthly dads is the photo negative of who our Heavenly Father is. He is the Father of whom every human Father is a shadow. For those of you who are believers this morning, my hope for you is that you would be freshly amazed by the Father's love for you. That you would be freshly amazed by the Father's love for you. I have literally been praying all week that you would come in this morning and be caught off guard by the reminder that the God of all creation loves you because I don't think there's any truth that can move us more than that, that in all circumstances, in all moments, I hope his love comes upon you every morning this upcoming week, like fresh dew on the grass in spring. And I pray even more that this upcoming week, that you would be reminded of that love in the most mundane of moments, that it would catch you off guard. I pray that as you're working at home or at the office and you get up from your desk on Tuesday at 10 a.m. to go to the bathroom, that it would be a time where God would remind you of his love for you. I pray that you'd be embarrassed about what people are thinking and why you're smiling and walking with a little skip in your step on your way to the the bathroom at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday, because it's in that moment that 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 love is just overwhelming you. How incredible is that? Students, I pray that as you go from math class to history class, and you're walking the halls, and you're trying to look cool, by the way, adults still try to look cool when they're walking the halls in their own office spaces, they will never grow out of that. I pray that in those moments, that the love of the Father would just wash over you, freshly amazed. As you're driving kids around this week, as you're sitting down for a meal, even maybe by yourself, I hope you will get to the point where you can't hold it in. The God who created the heavens and the earth calls me his son, calls me his daughter. You know, we had a men's breakfast yesterday that, that Pastor Joe led, fellowship hall downstairs filled with men of Grace Church. And one of the things that got talked about, not just by Pastor Joe, but by several men there in the discussion of how, as men, we were almost conditioned to have to keep our emotional lives in. That as men, it's kind of a sign of weakness to, let, to live out of your emotional life. And so what happens is you kind of bottle it in and you're always kind of aware of not getting too high or not going too low because you're a man and you can't let that get out. And yet at the foundation of the gospel, the highest blessing says you are his son. And that's emotional. And we are robbing ourselves if we are not walking in the freedom of what it is to be loved by God. That's true for all of us. For yesterday and downstairs, we talked about how it's true for the men. Do you know, walking in this morning, that the Father loves you, not because of anything you've done for Him, but because you're His child. He initiated that. He chooses that. And what happens is that when you are able to live out of that truth, your actions and your obedience might look the same as somebody who still considers himself a slave to this world, but inwardly, it makes all the difference. Uh, here's what I mean by that, is that there's a way to wake up every morning and read your Bible where, with the mentality and the posture that, that you're pinned down like a slave. I have to read my Bible this morning. I have to get through my plan. If I don't, God won't be happy. If I don't, I won't have a good day. I have to go to church on Sunday because it's Sunday and we have to go to church. I have to go serve at church this morning because I signed up and I'm on the schedule. I have to be honest with my taxes next month. Every action, even outwardly good actions, can be done from a place of slavery, not sonship. But when we walk in the freedom, of the Father's love for us. We read our Bible not to get something, but because we've gotten something. We gather with the church on Sunday to worship, not to get loved, but because we are loved. We seek to live with integrity and use our giftings for the flourishing of others, not out of obligation, but out of opportunity. And at the foundation of it all, you can do that not because you're perfect, but because you're a child, a child of the Father. And for those who are in here this morning who have not experienced that kind of relationship with God, you're not a professing Christian, first, we are just glad you're here and we mean that, I give you credit for being here and this all probably looks a little strange. It all sounds a little strange of what we're doing. We want you to know that our hope for you is that you would know and experience God as Father. And the reason why those of us who do call Him Father can do that is not because we lived our lives a certain way that caused Him to love us like that, but it's because we were adopted into his family by grace. And this offer is for you. And you might ask how. And that leads us to the second point. This passage shows us the love of the Father, and then number two, the sacrifice of the Son. Let me read verse four again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's heart from the beginning was always set upon adoption. Jesus was never a plan B. It was not a one-last-ditch effort. It was the plan before the foundations of the world were set, and when the fullness of time had come we could spend an hour on that word when the fullness of time had come god sent his son jesus christ is the grace of god embodied grace affirms that we didn't move towards god he moved toward us god took the first step when god sent his son And the reason why that had to be the case is that in our fallen state, there was nothing in us that desired God. Before I was in Christ, there was nothing in me that desired God. We were all, as Paul writes in verse 3, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this is the state of every person outside of Christ, unwilling to move toward God. Unable to turn toward God in our own strength. We are no more able to stir up our love for God than a pile of dry bones can stir themselves back to life. You know, we had a recent membership interview uh, at Grace with with a couple, and and, and the man, you know, basically in sharing his own story and testimony, it kind of struck me in the simplicity in which he spoke it, in which he basically said that before his conversion, there was nothing in him that showed any signs or desire for a spiritual life. That, That he did not grow up in a Christian home. He was fully immersed in a lifestyle of partying, and alcohol and drugs while he was in college, and he was loving it. There was no remorse in him. He wasn't laying awake at night thinking about his soul. He, was, he had full peace in the life he was living. No remorse. No concerns. And then he goes to an event Some of you have been Christians for a while, you'll appreciate this. He went to an event that he got invited to by a Christian, but the Christian didn't tell him it was a Christian event. (laughs) And something happened, and at the end, somebody got up and shared the gospel. You've been there? Like, wait a minute, where did this come from? Like, all of a sudden, somebody's just sharing the gospel at the end. And so he is sitting there. A man stands up and proclaims the gospel. And when the gospel was proclaimed, to his own surprise, he was weeping. Seeing himself as a sinner... Far from God. And he trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior. How do you explain that? Is that emotional manipulation by the Christians? Is that a strange chemical reaction in his brain? The explanation is grace. God's grace opening his eyes to a sinful state, deserving of judgment, and his need for a Savior while simultaneously offering him the Savior. And in order to save us, this Savior had to be both like us and unlike us. He must be like us so that he can relate to us, and he must be unlike us so that he could redeem us. To put it another way, he must be a human with our nature, But he must be God with a perfect nature. Enter Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, comma, born of a woman. That's an incredible phrase in your Bible. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is a mediator who is like us, born of a woman like you were and like I was. And he is a God who is an mediator who is unlike us, sent by God from eternity past. And this God-man, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God and the Son of Mary, came and lived the perfect life we could not so that he could be the sacrifice that dies the death we deserved. And by faith in him, He redeems those who are enslaved under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The gospel says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. Not just saved, the text says, but adopted. Adopted. To the church in Galatians, he was sent for you, to be a sacrifice for you. To grace church, he was sent for you. The God of the universe sent his only son for you, to be a sacrifice for you. And that truth does not just matter the day you believe for the first time. It becomes the truth that shapes every day you live from there on out. Which leads to lastly number three. We go from the love of the Father to the sacrifice of the Son to number three, the assurance of the Spirit. The assurance of the Spirit. Paul writes, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As I mentioned earlier, this verse is the kind of closing argument of what Paul set out to do back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. That by grace through faith, you become sons of God. You are heirs to Abraham. It's not your works, church. It's not your performance. It's not your circumcision, Galatians. It's not obedience to the law. It's not by being good enough. That's not the gospel. It's by grace. God made a way to bring you into his family by grace. Through faith. And you can notice the trinitarian nature not just of our outline but of the text. That verse 4, God the Father sent the Son into the world to grant redemption. And now verse 7, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts to grant assurance. You get redemption through the Son. You get assurance of that redemption through the Spirit. Here's what Paul wants them to know with everything he has in them, that God does not just adopt you as his child, he wants you to know you are his adopted child. Adoption is not anything less than full sonship. When my brother and sister-in-law adopted their daughter, Leah, she didn't become kind of their child. There's no asterisk next to her name. She's not less than their biological sons, Zeke and Jordan. Leah is not less cared for or less loved by them or by us. And so if you ever have heard someone say, maybe yourself know that maybe you've thought this or have said this, and I don't say this to to shame anyone, but but if someone were to say, you know what, I just don't know how I could love an adopted child in the same way I love my quote-unquote real kids, then I think you can also be sure that at that moment, they don't fully grasp the gospel because our Father loves us Like he loves Jesus. Can we just sit under that for a moment? Our Father loves us like he loves his eternal Son, Jesus. And we are co heirs with Christ. Paul's goal here is to give the Galatians assurance that they are no longer slaves but sons. Because, not just for them to be able to say it, but when you know that, when that's deep down in your bones, when you define yourself as like God's child, you are then empowered to walk in the freedom of that truth in a way that glorifies God and contributes to the flourishing of others. All right, this is what we want. This is what we talk and pray and preach about all the time at Grace Church. You, you heard it even in Joe's prayer this morning. We want to know him so that we can make him known. We want to bring glory to God so that we can contribute to the flourishing of others. The Bible says, love God and love neighbor. And the more assurance we have in our own hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit giving us that assurance, the more power we will have to live out that purpose every single day. So I don't know if you know this, but we stand here today, March 20th, on the first day of spring. Someone told me this morning I'd never knew this was a thing that spring officially began at 11:23 a.m. this morning. Happy spring. It's been a great start from a weather standpoint to our spring, But as we stand here, let me, let me say goodbye to winter this way. How many of you, this past winter went ice skating at least once. How many of you went ice skating? A lot of timid hands, a lot of timid hands. All right. Uh, there was more 9 a.m. ice skaters than 11 a.m., but there's a smattering out there. Um, I went ice skating this past winter for the second time in my life. <laughs> the first time, you may appreciate knowing this, was at Mary Capalbo's, our communication director's 12-year-old birthday party we go way back. It was a great party. Mary enjoyed it. I had not gone ice skating since that birthday party until this winter when a combination of circumstances found me on the ice once again. And I'm not even sure what you call what I did ice skating. Um, There were ice skates on my feet and then my hands were on the wall the entire time. And for my fellow wall huggers out there, you know the process. As you're moving along the wall, you inevitably come to a moment where you come upon somebody else who is also hugging the wall. And you have to pass one another. And you can't talk about this. It's too embarrassing. So there has to be this unspoken, nonverbal communication that says, who has the better chance of survival (laughs) to come off the wall? While the one can pass by. So, to say goodbye to winter, imagine this with me. There are two people, let's call them Jim and Alice, decide to go ice skating on a pond outdoors. And they're getting ready, to get to the edge and they're putting on their ice skates and Jim says to Alice, you know, gee Alice, I, I, I don't, do you think this ice, ice is going to hold us? Like, like, what if we fell through? There's, we haven't seen anyone for, for miles. Like, that would be a tough spot. And Alice is sitting, shaking her head, saying, of course it's going to hold, Jim. We were just told yesterday that this pond is two feet thick. Someone drove a truck on it. Didn't you hear them tell us that? And Jim just says, yeah, Alice, of course I I heard. But anything's possible, you know? what what if today is different? It's a scary thought of what could happen if this ice breaks. What if it can't hold? And Alice just says, Jim, no way. I I can't wait to go. Let's let's go. And they go on the ice. And the entire time, Jim is so tentative, barely moving, just one small step at a time. And the entire time, he is staring at the ice, wondering if this next moment is the moment he's going to fall through. But Alice, she goes out and just lets loose. She's just zigzagging all over the place. She's doing double axles, triple axles. Sign her up. Here's my question. Which one fell through the ice? The answer is neither. And the reason is that they are kept from falling not because of their strength in the faith of the ice, They are kept from falling because of the strength of the ice. Not their faith in the ice, but in the ice itself. And in the same way, our assurance is not based on the strength of our faith or the ability of our obedience at any given moment. Our assurance is based upon the strength of Christ, who by his blood made us sons of God. And how often do we struggle with our sonship because of our weakened faith or our lack of obedience? How often do we find ourselves thinking, I can't really be a son? I can't really be a daughter? If I still struggle with this, all these years later, I'm still going to struggle with this? How could God ever love me? How could He ever care for me when I continue to do such stupid things when I still have those thoughts? I'm a leader. People look at me. How could that be? And in those moments, we find ourselves staring at the ice like Jim. We find ourselves reaching back for the world we've been freed from, like Russell and Maria's two one year old sons coming out of the orphanage because they could not grasp their new father and mother's love for them. Just like the Galatian church is reaching back for a salvation of works when they have already been freed through salvation by faith. Our assurance in those moments of doubt and self-condemnation that you have had, that maybe you'll have today in this upcoming week. Our assurance is not found by saying, well, you know what? I've done a lot of good things too. I've done enough to even more than offset all the bad things. Or at least I will vow to be good from here on out. You've been in that spot with the Lord? Lord, from here on out, I promise I'm yours. I'll do everything you want me to do. If that's what we're rooting our assurance in, it will never work. And we don't need it to work because it is enough for us to say that Jesus died for me. And my assurance is in the strength of the ice. And his name is Jesus. And he will keep me from falling. And that is our only plea before the throne of God above. For he is the one who strengthens faith when we look upon him. And here's the thing, that assurance is not just displayed by saying I have assurance, it's put on display by the way we live our lives. It puts on display where we can be like Alice, and we don't have to be staring at ourselves and staring at the ice, but we can live in the freedom and the enjoyment of God's grace, and we can do our double axles, and we can do our triple axles for the glory of God and the flourishing of others. Because you can't care for others when you're always staring at yourself. And God lifts our eyes to Him, and then to others, and we're free. This is adoption. This is the highest blessing of the gospel. And that highest blessing is put on display no more clearly when we can see God and cry out, Abba, Father. Let me close with going back to Russell Maria Moore. During that initial visit to the orphanage, they spoke of the deafening silence of the children in that orphanage that haunted them. As I said in the introduction, infants who never get a response to their cries will eventually stop. And Moore recounts what happens next. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Timothy smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib, Little Benjamin stood straight at attention, regal and czar like but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand, about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the scene. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered in that first visit, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Benjamin fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba, Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school, and I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. He responds to our cries, and we can cry because we know when we do, he hears, he acts, and he moves. And as God's children, as heirs to the promise, we know who we are. We're sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you how your inspired word both engages the mind and stirs the heart. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul and how you inspired him to emphasize our sonship in you. And I pray, Lord, especially for those who feel weak in the faith this morning, who are in the midst of trial and circumstance, that it is in these moments that your Spirit can come upon us and have us cry, Abba, Father, for you will hear, you will know, you will always move because you first moved toward us by sending your Son. So I pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed by your love. I pray that we'd be impacted by the sacrifice of your Son, and I pray that we would be assured by the presence of your Spirit, and let it be all for your glory and your glory alone. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together.